Welcome to MIG's Front Page, the official podcast of JMIG, the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery. With our hosts, Courtney Fox and Kathleen Ackert, we interview authors of recent publications in JMIG to keep you up to date on the latest in evidence-based practices in our field. In episode 31, we welcome Dr. Giovanna Tavkar, discussing the article entitled, Incidents and Clinical Implications of Placenta Accreta Spectrum After Treatment for Asherman Syndrome. All right, so welcome. Uh, Dr. Tavkar is here to discuss her recent paper, Incidents and Clinical Implications of Placenta Accreta Spectrum After Treatment for Asherman Syndrome, which was published in JMIG in March 2023. Dr. Tavkar, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. And if I start, we can probably use the entire time for me to tell you about myself, but I'll try to be brief. Um, so I am originally from Serbia in Eastern Europe. I came to this country 10 years ago. I did my first residency in Serbia in OBGYN in clinical center of Serbia. And then we moved here because we wanted to and also for my husband's job. And then it took me a little bit to match. And then I did another residency um, here at um, Georgetown University Hospital System, MedStar. Um, And then I did the Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery Fellowship at uh, primarily Newton Wellesley, but it's Mass General Brigham System, so also associated with Mass General. Now I'm back to DC. And interestingly, not to recommend that, but my family stayed in DC, my husband and my son, during my fellowship. So it was a little bit of kind of commute between Boston and um and DC, but they took me back. So I am back with my family and back to the place where I did residency. So now I work at Georgetown um, University Hospital in MedStar system. Other than that, I think I'm a relatively fun person and I work a lot. Sounds like a great life summary. Well, we really enjoyed reading your paper. So can you tell us a little bit more about what was the objective of the study? Yes. So first of all, uh, before we go into the details of the paper, I have to um, kind of thank all the authors that were with me on this paper, especially um, Dr. Peter Movilla, who was the fellow before me and who actually started this database of our Asherman patients with our Newton Wellesley's mixed practice being one of the uh, most known and referral centers for Asherman syndrome in the country. And so um, we had multiple papers came out of, you know, the database that was created primarily by Dr. Movilla. And then also um, this paper that I worked on was also thanks to that concentrated effort led by him initially. Um, So that is kind of the intro. And the lovely thanks to my team that I worked with for this paper. And then the goal, so back to the paper. So the primary objective was to show the incidence um, of placenta creta spectrum in patients treated for Asherman syndrome with hysteroscopic resection. But you know, when you have the primary goal, when you're thinking about research, you're thinking about all these other questions that come into mind, and then there's multiple secondary objectives. And if we go into these, so, uh, you know, if we talk about incidents, there were some studies that were a little bit older and always obviously on small numbers, but um, who did talk about the, the incidents. But when we think about the risk factors, so who of these patients is higher likelihood, but to have a placenta creta spectrum after the treatment for Asherman syndrome, there's really not 
any literature on the risk factors. So we wanted to see what are the risk factors uh, for one to have it, and does it have anything to do with the extent of Asherman syndrome, etiology of Asherman syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. And then to see um, what is overall kind of, you know, other obstetric complications that come out of the placenta creta spectrum. And then also, was this diagnosed in these patients before, and I mean, during their pregnancy and before their delivery, and then also to see were they counseled about it up front? Uh, were they counseled about a possible hysterectomy up front? Um, you know, see also what the incidence of hysterectomy was. So we had multiple secondary objectives. So how was your study performed? So uh, we, um, as I already mentioned, had uh, created a database of all the patients that were treated for Ashman syndrome between um, 2015 and 2019 in our center. Uh, from that um, database, we uh, contacted the patients. So we reached about 150 patients and um, out of them, uh, we identified 97 patients who got pregnant, but also uh, their pregnancy passed the first trimester. 81 patients that we reached over the phone um, who got pregnant and their pregnancy passed the first trimester uh, and who told us that they were told at the time of the delivery that they had placenta accreta spectrum. And then on top of these patients, out of the patients that we didn't reach over with a tel via telephone. Many of them, we had their records because they, they were treated also for obstetrical care in our system. So then out of these patients, we identified 16 patients who passed the pregnancy, uh, you know, passed the first trimester, total of 97 patients um, who um, got pregnant after the treatment for Asherman syndrome and their pregnancy passed the first trimester. Why we decided to include only the patients who continue to be pregnant after first trimester is because I can't say that it's impossible to diagnose placenta creta spectrum in the first pregnant uh, in the first trimester but it is highly unlikely that it would present that it, it that it would be diagnosed based on imaging so that's why we use that criteria so then out of those 97 patients those that we reached over the telephone we asked did you have you know they told us they had placenta creta spectrum and then out of those that we had records for um, that we didn't reach over the telephone we found that in the records um, had a diagnosis of placenta creta spectrum at, you know either during pregnancy or at the time of delivery now just going a little bit more into the details. Um, what is very good is that for everybody who said that they had placenta creta spectrum, we obtained obstetrical records. So we could confirm that. So that sounds like a great model for the study to be performed. And what were your results from the study? So now out of these 97 patients who got pregnant and passed the first trimester and got to, you know, further stages of pregnancy. We actually identified 23, which is 23.7% of patients who had placenta accreta spectrum, which is a high incidence, but just a little bit on the definition of the placenta accreta spectrum, which I think is very important in general. So during my fellowship, we did a lot of um, resection of retained products of conception. And so a lot of times you have the retained products that are, that are, deeper in the wall, in the muscle, right? They're not just like sitting there fluffy and they come for you to just grab it. So then I talked to my mentors and I was like, this isn't a creed. I mean, this is not normal placentation. This isn't a creed uh, that like wasn't really cold before, right? And then 
And then some of them would be like, well, duh. And I was like, but that's not like well-defined. Like, like these patients, they don't know they had placenta creta, right? And like, do we know? And how do we say that they did? Like, what's our diagnostic criteria for accreta, right? So doing this paper, I had to decide what criteria are we going to use? And the general treatment and standard treatment for placenta creta is a hysterectomy, right? But we all know that a lot of times we don't know that in advance, so hysterectomy is not performed. Like we don't, we, not everybody who had an accreta spectrum had a hysterectomy, right? And so then, you know, doing the research for the study, FIGO has their papers and their um, definitions of placenta creta and, and uh, you know, the recommendations for diagnosis and treatment, et cetera. So we use one of the definitions from Collins that was published a few decades ago, and it's in my paper, that um, also talks about your clinical diagnosis of placenta creta spectrum. So basically, it goes from a grade one to six, talks about how at the time of the delivery, um, if there's a manual removal of the placenta is required, and you know parts of placenta um, are thought to be more abnormally adherent, that's definitely on the placenta creta spectrum. So that's the definition that we use and people who read the paper can read more details. So I wouldn't go into all the details about it, but that's how we graded it. We also use the clinical definitions. So if people needed a DNC at the time of the delivery and the clinician clearly explained that there were you know, uh, adherent elements, then that's on the creta spectrum. So now out of all these 23 patients who had placenta creta spectrum, some of these accretas were uh, lower level accreta, right? So so just focal, needed a manual extraction, needed a DNC, but also there were four invasive placentas and, you know, even four out of 97 is a lot. Uh, I mean, based on their general population, right? So there was one in Creta and three per Cretas. So I think that was also a very important and interesting finding that supports the severity of this issue in patients with Asherman syndrome. So then that was the incidence. That was our primary objective. But then I think it, we even go into more interesting information if we go further into the secondary objectives. So looking at um, what would be the risk factors for somebody to have placenta Creta spectrum of patients obviously treated for Asherman syndrome, we looked at few no Known fa risk factors, so such as advanced maternal age, IVF, but then we also wanted to look at a history of C-section. Um, so though, out of those three, uh, only history of cesarean section was found to be statistically significant um, between the patients who had an accreta spectrum and those who didn't out of our initial cohort of everybody treated for Asherman syndrome. But then the factors that are related to Asherman syndrome that we looked at as potential risk factors, so such as um, the percent of cavity involved involvement or the severity based on either MARCH or ASRM classification, neither of these two were associated with kind of having a, an accreta spectrum. And also neither was the etiology, presumed etiology of Asherman syndrome. So what does that mean? That means that in general, you know, within the experts in the field who treat Asherman syndrome, there's this thought that if the Asherman syndrome adhesions happen after like one DNC for a first trimester loss or first trimester abortion, they usually that's a lower severity disease as opposed to postpartum hemorrhage infection, DNC at the time of the delivery, which is usually gives you um, for, for the most part, more severe adhesive disease. But that's, I mean, that is, we didn't find the correlation between different etiology and risk of having an accreta spectrum, which means that 
basically anybody who had adhesive disease is kind of at the same risk of having an accretus spectrum, which in the discussion, we touch upon this and it basically raises the question of what causes the problem? Do the adhesions cause the placenta accretus spectrum or is it some sort of intrinsic factor that makes the, the lining uh, predisposed to both scarring and then abnormal placentation? And then there are many experts in the field who think it's the latter, right? That there's something in the lining, because again, also not everybody who has a DNC gets Asherman syndrome, right? So, so th there's a really a likelihood that, that there's an intrinsic factor that is kind of the reason for both. And it's not that the scar tissue has caused the accreta. So then uh, we also, as I said, looked at um, you know, whether um, the, and in which percentage of cases was the placenta creta spectrum diagnosed um, antenatally. And um, I guess not surprisingly, it was not often diagnosed antenatally. So um, it was diagnosed antenatally only in three patients, which is 14% of uh, patients with accreta spectrum. Those patients who had a previa, they were statistically more likely to be diagnosed with an accreta. And now that's also another question. Somebody has a previa, there's, there's a thought that, you know, they could have an accreta and is it the bias in people doing the ultrasounds that are looking more thoroughly for this? Or is there something different in the placentation in patients who have adhesions in their cavity, which were either their placentas would be smaller or maybe less vascular because there's just also kind of less vascularity to that cavity in general that makes those placentas less likely to be diagnosed antenatally on the ultrasound. Not sure, but that's also another thing that didn't just come up with our paper, but it's also like a question in the field. Is there something different on the ultrasound for these placentas that just makes them harder to, to find and identify? Interestingly, all the patients obviously have ultrasound in pregnancy and their placenta is evaluated, but only one patient had an MRI and they had an MRI at 19 weeks because there was a high risk for placenta abnormality. Ultrasound was non-diagnostic slash didn't think that there is an accretive spectrum. And MRI was also normal. And then unfortunately, the patient presented shortly thereafter, a week or two later, in still very early pregnancy and had a ruptured uterus and had a percreta at the time. So in that case, there was an obvious percreta that wasn't diagnosed neither on the ultrasound or on the MRI. In 12 patients, they still had high clinical suspicion that they had it. So that's like 63% of the, of the patients, despite the fact that their imaging was negative for the accreta spectrum. So I think that's one of the points of this article that we also have to counsel the patients well upfront when we treat them for Asherman syndrome and tell them you are your own advocate. So even if it's your placenta is not identified as accreta spectrum on the ultrasound during pregnancy, you still have to know that there's a risk that you have it and that there should be some plans for delivery put in place in case it's encountered. And, and again, in some, of, in some of the instances that was done that way uh, in our study. So now when we looked at the counseling, like where patients counseled on the possibility of having an accreta spectrum with coming into pregnancy with, hey, I had a history of Asherman syndrome and treated intrauterine adhesions. Well, that was, that was relatively good. Still can be better, but 76% um, of patients 
had that counseling. When we looked in the records about the counseling about possibly having a hysterectomy at the time of delivery, that number was lower. So only about half of the patients who had a creta spectrum, uh, there was a mention in the documentation in the prenatal notes that, that, that you know, there's a higher risk for needing a cesarean hysterectomy or a peripartum hysterectomy. So then we also looked at the kind of details of the delivery planning were other specialties consulted, and that was in about third of patients who had a creative spectrum, so 28.6% of patients. The other specialties were counseled, and that's usually gynoc or urology. And then about half of the cases, delivery was planned with consideration and risk for having a placenta creative spectrum. So what does that mean? These patients were, it was kind of anticipated. So either, you know, their delivery would be scheduled or there would be counseling and there would be a discussion with the patient. So if we encounter this, that the placenta is not coming out, what, what do you want us to do? So there's a discussion up front. Should we go right away to a hysterectomy? If obviously there's bleeding, et cetera. If, there, if the clinical circumstances allow, do you want us to try conservative management? Are we going to try to take it out, you know, in, in pieces and manually? And then if that's not working, do we then go to a hysterectomy? So like, you, you know, there was some, there was planning of that sort in about half uh, or 50% of the patients. Then uh, we go into the, the results for cesarean hysterectomy. Nine patients out of these 23 um, acquired a cesarean hysterectomy. So that's another really high number, right? And um, that's 39% of the patients who had placenta creta spectrum. Some of these were almost like planned. So like if obviously if it was identified before, and then some of those were planned in those discussions. So there were discussions, okay, we are doing a C-section for different indications. And then if the placenta is not coming at that time, these are the risks, these are the benefits, should we proceed with a hysterectomy? So some of them were planned, but some of them were obviously the majority was unplanned. So now other obstetrical morbidity, um, 14 patients had postpartum hemorrhage, so more than one liter. So that's 60%, 61% of patients who had placenta creta spectrum. Average estimated blood loss was 1730, which is high, as we all know six patients had more than two liters of blood loss. So all, you know, really, really high and with good counseling and good planning, one would think that the goal would be to avoid that. So that those, that would be a big thing to, you know, try and avoid. And then seven patients, about a third required blood transfusion. And then, and then we had, there were two uterine ruptures and two uterine inversions, which are also high numbers for, you know, such a small cohort of patients. Even if you look out of 97 patients that got pregnant past the first trimester, right? I mean, two ruptures and two inversions, that's like 2% and 2%. So in terms of the ruptures, both of these patients did have previous C-sections, but the ruptures were not at the site of the C-sections. The ruptures were at the site of the placenta, which was one at the fundus, one on the posterior uterus. So it, you, one could say that that was not really related to a previous C-section. Just one more thing. When we looked, we also looked at the risk factors for um, cesarean hysterectomy. And so when we looked at these risk factors, we identified that etiology of Asherman syndrome actually did play a role. 
those patients whose etiology of Asherman syndrome was either DNE after the second trimester pregnancy or postpartum instrumentation, those were the ones who were at a higher risk of having a, a hysterectomy. And then the other risk factors was obviously invasive placenta, such as Procreta and Increta. I mean, but that kind pretty much comes without saying. So in that case, the etiology of Asherman syndrome did play a role. So there are patients who are, whose etiology was the kind of first trimester instrumentation in previous pregnancy, that is the supposed etiology of their Asherman, the, their risk of having a C-hist wasn't, wasn't higher. Now with C-hist here, we're speaking about small numbers, but again, that's the best numbers we have at this point, I think, in literature. So what are your future directions for all of this awesome data? I definitely think, I mean, my counseling is definitely different after this paper. In the March issue of JMIG, also the editorial was kind of along these lines. So along the lines of counseling in patients for Asherman syndrome, it was the editorial was done by Dr. James Robinson, who was actually one of, I think that was randomly, but he also uh, was one of my mentors in residency. He was the first fellow in the fellowship where I graduated. So his training on Asherman syndrome is also very strong. And so, you know, he also now has many patients and in this area, he's one of the names for referrals for Asherman syndrome patients. So he and, and our fellows wrote the editorial advocating for better counseling in patients for Asherman syndrome. So, so, you know, when we as makes physicians, right, we are the ones treating it. We're the ones doing advanced hysteroscopy. But there are REI physicians who do it. There are generalist um, gynecologists who do it. So it's, it's, not, it's not only our territory, but for the most part. So anybody who's doing it and who's treating the patients, I think also has the responsibility to counsel the patients, right? And to tell them, yes, we're doing this for the most part. And usually the goal is fertility. But when you're making these decisions, it's not only can you get pregnant, but you should know what um, the risks are and you should make your informed decision. So you obviously want to proceed with the pregnancy. Fine. We are here to support you, but that decision should be informed. And then not only just to decide whether you would get pregnant, but also then when you are pregnant to have these discussions with your um, obstetrical provider and, you know, A to C if the setting where your pregnancy care is being provided, is that an appropriate setting for risk of all of these things? If not, if nothing else, then massive transfusion, right? But, and obviously see his and all of that. And then the other thing is to make those plans. So like, okay, like we didn't think you had an accreta, but placenta is not coming. So what do we do now? Right. So are we, are you like, good? Is this your third pregnancy? And you're like, I don't want any risks. Let's do, uh, you know, a C hist before we try to take the placenta out. And, you know, we have a blood loss and then we are doing everything in an in a even bigger emergency. Or, you know, are we having multidisciplinary teams? Do we have somebody on backup? So, you know, all of these uh, discussions ideally should be should be done up front. And I already had like a few, you know, experiences in practice and so first of all, like there are patients who can get intimidated by this counseling. So, so you have to have a balance. So the goal is, and I, sh I shouldn't be as the author of this paper, be biased and be like, oh my God, this is super scary. Like all these complications and like with my uh, whole attitude towards it to discourage patients from getting pregnant. So that's obviously not the goal. 
So it should be a balanced counseling, making all these points that just safety things need to be in place for this to be addressed. So we, we actually had um, relatively recently two patients who both were treated for Asherman syndrome and were kind of delivering kind of very closely back to back. And both of them I counseled and one of them had no issues. And the other one actually had the placenta that wasn't coming out. She raised that uh, you know, with their, with her obstetrician at the very time, as they were trying to deliver the placenta and it wasn't coming, she said, let me remind you, I had Asherman syndrome and I have higher risk for, you know, abnormal placentation, even if it's not diagnosed before, you know, during pregnancy. So have that in mind. And they were like, yeah, that's correct. So let's not yank on it anymore. So like, that was the real life example of um, patient being their own advocate for um, this condition. You've given us a lot of really great information. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners of this podcast when it comes to hysteroscopy, Asherman's, placenta accreta spectrum, life advice? I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is to be empowered by the information and to, to really, I think it's, it is our responsibility as hysteroscopists and somebody who's treating it to at that very time also counsel the patients because nobody will know this information better than us who treat patients with Asherman syndrome. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Tavkar. It's been great. I think this is a wonderful paper. It definitely has changed the way that I plan on counseling my patients. Yeah. No, thank you guys so much for having me. Well, this has been another episode of MIGS Front Page. Thanks for listening to this episode of MIGS Front Page, brought to you by our team, Courtney Fox, Kathleen Ackert, and Veronica Galaviz. Produced by Daniel Nassar. 